Welcome to Episode 7 of the Music Magic Podcast with Chick Corea. Today's session is a fascinating conversation between Chick and the great vibraphonist and Chick's longtime collaborator, Gary Burton. Since 1972, they've been one of the most consistently thrilling and innovative duets in music. Their ethereal sound, unparalleled technical mastery, and deep repertoire continue to captivate audiences around the world. Today's chat was recorded while on tour in Tokyo. The Music Magic Podcasts are brought to you by ChickCoreaMusicWorkshops.com, featuring training videos covering everything from improvisation, harmony, technique, and much more, all direct from Chick. Now, over to Chick and Gary. So uh, we're here, Gary and I are here in uh, Tokyo, in uh, uh, at the, uh, what is this, the Tokyo Park Hotel. Yes. And um, it's, um, we, I just finished a, a few solo concerts. We're about to dive into th- uh, four shows with the Harlem String Quartet. Yes, here in Tokyo. Yeah, it's their first time to Japan. Oh, I wondered about that. And they're all okay. excited. I, I imagine so. Honestly. And uh, I can't wait to, uh, uh, to, to have the Japanese audience hear what we've got going with the sex, Yeah, with they're going to love it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we, we're rehearsing today and dive into the concert starting tomorrow. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, so there, uh, uh, I, I have no, I have no plan for, you know, I didn't write, make any notes. I'm not, uh, this is, this is not a, uh, this is not a seminar or, a, <laughs> or we're not trying to teach anything, but I'm, I'm, you know, Gary and I, we've known each other since, uh, the late sixties. That's right. Uh, and, uh, in fact, every time, every time we talk about when we first met, we always we have two different versions going on. <laughs> I can't really remember some of the incidents that you remember. Uh, I played in Gary's band uh, 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 for a little bit. That was after the Stan Getz experience, right? Right. That's yeah. right. But but uh, our connection goes back, of course, to the Stan Getz Quartet, which Gary was a member of for three years. What years? Sixty-four, five, and six. Yeah. And then you came in right after me. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, how long were you with Stan? Actually, oh, uh, they, uh, uh, a, a good cup, a, a good year and or two years, maybe. I remember uh, coming to see you guys at a club in Boston. Stanley was playing uh, bass. Oh, that was no. That was the second uh, iteration. Time. That oh, was the second time. iteration. Oh, okay. The first time was when Steve Swallow called me up. That's right. And and uh, uh, Roy, Roy was, in was still band. in the band. Okay. Roy Haynes. Yeah. Uh, and Stan and uh, I worked. Uh, we went to Europe. Uh, we went to uh, uh, Mexico City. I remember. We played around the U.S. We played at the Village Vanguard in New York, and we did a bunch of gigs with Roy and mm-hmm. Steve. Then, uh, uh, then we did the recording "Sweet Rain," yes, which was without Roy and Steve, uh, which was with uh, Grady Tate and Ron Carter. Yeah. Now, should we tell the interesting story about that? Well, do you remember this? Uh, I, I remember what happened from my end. I don't know. Were you connected into that? Well, Inst- Steve told me that. Um, Stan had first recorded the same music oh, yeah. with, we, we, with the group, with Roy and Steve. We went in the studio. Yeah. And see, we were on the road, and we had a repertoire. So yeah. we, we went in the studio. with The the, uh, the, the traveling quartet was, 
with Steve Swallow, Roy Haynes, Dan, and, and myself, and uh, we went into the studio to record our, our repertoire. And uh, Stan uh, wasn't feeling so good, and was kind of teeter-tottering. And, well, and, uh, I heard that Creed Taylor was unhappy with it, that he was unhappy with Roy, because he thought he played too busy, and so he asked Stan to come back and record the thing with the same with Steve and you and everybody again without telling Roy <laughs> that he'd been replaced. And, uh, and Stan wasn't too comfortable with that, and Steve refused to do it. And so... I, I, about, I was about to refuse to do yeah, it when and, I heard. And, and then Creed had a, a, a real love affair going with Grady Tate and Ron Carter. He used them on many yeah. records. So he was convinced that this was the, the better combination for Stan. Yeah. And so it did get remade, yeah. but uh, not without some typical gets political, you know, Plus, well, that, well, that my, often happens. My remembrance of the of the date was that Stan was tipsy. He oh, he, okay. he wasn't he wasn't uh, he wasn't on the ball. Well, and he had certainly had bad days. Yeah, frequently. It was a bad day for, for Stan. <clears throat> and uh, you know, Roy Roy and Roy just tipping along there. And mm. uh, Roy Roy plays some beautiful subtle rhythm. And Ron, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Stan just kept. Uh, losing the beat. Oh dear! And then, and then, what I got was that Stan then said, "Oh well, Roy's screwing up." <laughs> and I, I never heard. That's the first I've heard that Creed Taylor uh, had anything to do. With okay. This. Well, this is what Steve told me. I mean, and probably uh, true. Which I heard. I don't know. You know, a, a year later, after yeah. Steve had joined my band. Yeah. And uh, was was kind of happened to come upon that story, but uh, yeah. But it's it, when the minute I heard it, I said, "Well, classic Stan. There's always some complication that happens with his projects." Uh, I was really life. disappointed because I, I I was loving the quartet as it existed. Yeah, with Steve, sure. With I mean, Steve that's like a, like a dream band. Exactly, and that was my first contact with Roy, and it was uh, I already had played with Steve a little bit, and it was a mm -hmm. perfect rhythm section. I just loved it and was so disappointed that I was ready to pull out and, yeah. and say, well, no, I, if, if, if Rory's not going to be there and Steve, Steve's not going to be there, I, I don't want to do it. But then Steve, as a good um, um, friend, uh -huh. uh, encouraged me to do the date because Stan was uh, uh, going to record some of my songs. And oh, he yeah. Said, he said it would be mm -hmm. good for you to do the date. And I did the date, and I'm glad I did. Uh, and yeah. it was, uh, well, that leads me to ask you, I've always been curious, uh, I, I mentioned earlier that I saw you playing with Stan then later on with uh, Stanley Clark oh, yeah. and Tony Williams, I think was the, he's Tony the, Williams was the drummer. And, and actually, uh, Ayerto. And Ayerto, was, playing percussion. Yes. Well, what, How what, did that come about? What happened was uh, my stint with the, with the quartet with Roy and, uh, and Steve uh, lasted a year and a half or, or so. And then, I, and then I, got, I got called to play with Sarah Vaughn. And then I went and I took the gig with Sarah Vaughn, and Stan didn't have uh, too many gigs anyway, and mm. so so I stopped working with Stan there for a while. And then, um, then I, I it was my first. Uh, I, I was also uh, working with. Um, now wait a minute, hold on. Oh, here's the chronology. Okay, <laughs> I got it now. Then after Sarah, while I was with Sarah, I got the call from Tony Williams to to come and play with Miles. Mm. So that was 1968. And uh, I spent 1968 and 1969 
and nine and part of 1970 with uh, with with Miles. Mm-hmm. Then uh, after um, uh, during that period, I began to to uh, experiment with. Uh, uh, I w- uh, oh, after Miles, then there was Circle for a year. Oh, that's right. With I Dave Holland, that. I remember that group. Me yeah. and Dave, mm-hmm. right? Then after that, I that's when I formed Return to Forever in '71. Right, uh, and that was with Stanley. That was with Stanley Clark, and then Ayerto and Flora Porum and Joe Farrell. Right, and we started working, and the band was really cooking and doing mm-hmm. doing very very well, like your band was yeah. at, at, during that period. It was a it was a heyday of of, mm-hmm. of new music. Then, what happened is Return to Forever had like several months uh, with no gigs, uh-huh. <clears throat> and I heard through I forget how I heard I heard that Stan had a tour booked. But didn't have a rhythm section, so I thought, "Gee, I need some work. Uh, I'm, I, I have an idea that would be fun." So I called Stan up and I said, "Stan, uh, pay me a little bit more money than last time you paid me, and and I, I'll be musical director and I'll bring you the band, a band with Tony mm-hmm. Williams and Stanley Clark and Ierto." And he said. Great. Great. So we <laughs> went up to his house to rehearse, and uh, that's how that section started. And as, as a matter of fact, the first gig was a week at the Rainbow Grill oh my in, in, in New, New York. York with Joao Gilberto. Oh, no kidding. And that's when I met Joao. So mm-hmm. we rehearsed up at Stan's estate, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I met Joao, and that's that, that whole thing lasted for... Uh, I don't know six eight months that tour. Stanley stayed on after that, uh-huh. but but then uh, well, we we went back mm-hmm. to Return to Forever. I guess I was lucky. I happened to see see you guys play then. Where? Well, it was in Boston at Lenny's on oh, the turnpike. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and of course I was living in Boston then, so I yeah. saw you were going to be there, so I went up to check it out. And it was the first time I had seen Stan play with a more modern rhythm section. Yeah. And because uh, he was, you know, evolving as a player, and uh, and he wasn't playing mostly standards anymore, bossa novas at that by that time he was playing your tunes, yeah. and um, now was that around the time you made Captain Marvel? Yeah, because as we, well, because I brought uh, uh, as musical director, I brought a bunch of songs, yeah. in, and we recorded Captain Marvel, uh, uh, La Fiesta, a uh, bunch of my mm-hmm, songs mm-hmm. that Stan really liked. And uh, what, what, uh, was I, when you heard us at Lenny's, was, was I playing uh, an electric piano? No, it was acoustic. Just, just acoustic, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I, I added the Rhodes after that. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was our first connection. The Stan Getz yeah. Quartet produced uh, uh, all of that. But you know, you know one of my interests, a question, not a question, just an interest of mine, because I read, uh, I read, I haven't read your whole book yet. It's really great, but I, I, I love the anecdotes the mm-hmm. way you, you tell what your experiences were. But what I'm interested in the period where, where two things. First of all, well, let me get one thing at a time. Going back this way, uh, I'm interested in the period where you, where you started to make a connection, doing concerts together with Duke Ellington. Uh-huh. And you talk about Duke a little bit, and and uh, mm-hmm. you were on the road with the uh, um, um, uh, the promoter, the great promoter's name from Boston, George Ween. George Ween, uh, uh, and he was the connecting factor. Yeah. Um, now, that, wh- what year are we talking about? Well, I got to know George in uh, while I was with Stan. Because as you you know from that era, Stan was uh, had had a terrible alcohol problem, and um, 
and, and it was kind of necessary for somebody on the scene to uh, kind of take care of some business stuff, you know, yeah. uh, with the club owners or the concert promoters and so on. Yeah. Uh, and Quinn Stan was sort of out of it on some days. And so that became my role. And as such, I got to know uh, a lot of the club owners and, and promoters around the country. Oh, yeah. Uh, because, you know, they, they actually liked me a lot because they felt like I had saved the gig with Stan from being a disaster. You were actually tour manager for that, yeah, for that band, right? I was, because Stan was so inept at it that I volunteered to do it just so that we would have hotel reservations when we got to cities yeah. and things like that. And uh, but it turned out to be a great connection for me because I met these uh, you know the industry people, which a side player usually doesn't you yeah. know deal with. And George Ween booked several tours uh, with Stan. Yeah. And uh, and the last tour I did with Stan was in Europe, and uh, there was a big blow up with Stan and Astrid Gilberto, and and, uh, and all sorts of things went on. And George uh, said to me at the end of it, said, you know, you don't need Stan anymore. Why don't you come to see me when you get back to New York? So uh, uh, that was 60, the, the beginning of, end of 66, the beginning of 67. Uh -huh. yeah. And um, uh, George said he was, uh, you know, really, you know, convinced I was going to do well in the business and wanted to uh, do what he could to, you know, help me out. So uh, I formed a band, and in the next few months, he came to hear us playing at a club in New York. Who was in that first band? That was... Steve? No, that's, that's a surprising thing. It was Larry Coriel on guitar. Right, all right. But it was Bill Evans' rhythm section. It was Eddie Gomez and Joe Hunt. Oh, right. Bill yeah. was on one of his, you know, occasional long vacations. Yeah. And uh, they were, like you described earlier, they were sitting around with nothing to do. And Joe's uh, from Indianapolis. Yeah. yeah. So from we, your, we, your know, we knew each other uh, from years back. And, in fact, he had been the first drummer with Stan Getz when I joined. Right. The first year it was Joe. So, anyway, I... Needing a rhythm section quickly, I hired the two of them for the first few months, and uh, it was and it was after they went back to playing with Bill that that I managed to lure Steve away from Stan's band. Yeah, but uh, the connection with Duke Ellington and quite a few other uh, of the established players was uh, because of George. Um, he told me. After we heard the man the first time, he said, this is great. I love it when somebody's doing some, some new stuff. So I'm going to put you on all my, all my concerts, all my tours and festivals for this mm. year. Wow. And that ended up being for two years, actually. Mm. So that was like half my work schedule was... 67 and 68. Was taken care of right there. Because mm. every year we would go to Europe for a few weeks. Uh, he, he did summer festivals. He did Newport. He did, you know, Japan uh, tours and so on. What were these shows? Uh, uh, who, who, like, what was the billing? What, well, what, what was the program? These uh, were program? Ty typical jazz festivals. Yeah. You know, he started out, as most people know, doing the, the famous Newport Jazz Festival, which, in fact, this year will be celebrating its 60th year. That's right, yeah. And, um, but he started recreated that in other places, yeah. you know, in, in uh, New Orleans, which has now become this huge, you know, uh, jazz and heritage festival. He did festival concerts here in Japan, all over Europe, Every right. year, he he just put on these these festivals. Uh, Was it always the same group of musicians traveling around? Well, a lot of them were. 
Miles like, was on a lot of them during those years. What was the show that Duke Ellington was well, on? Well, George was the sole booking agent for Duke's band oh, for the last decade no. that he was in in the business. I didn't realize that. Uh, he he ended up just saying, "Look, George, you know you you just take you know take charge of it and and." You, you know, I'll let's you know I'll just work with you. So, uh, and of course, to George, that was a great honor being a, a musician himself and a, having sure. Duke as a hero all those years. Yeah. So he worked like crazy to uh, send Duke on tours all over the world. You know, mm. to the Far East, State Department tours and all that sort of thing. And and George would not only book the dates, but he would send his own people along to be the tour managers and so on. So. Since I was also doing a lot of George's uh, festivals and tours, I ended up seeing Duke, you know, uh, constantly. Yeah. You know, every. What, what was the show like? It was just you and Duke, or no, other other bands? Some nights it might be, oh. but usually it was a typical festival night. There'd be like four or five bands. Different bands each. Different time? bands. Uh, oh, I see. Uh, each I thought time. the same group. No, of bands there used was to prep. one long summer tour that yeah. was the same bands. Yeah. Uh, with Thelonious Monk. And his quartet, my band, Cannibal Adderley's band, oh. and uh, Jerry Mulligan, and, wow. and and Dion Warwick. All in one night. All, it was one long afternoon night. Wow! It, it was a, with Duke. No, not with Duke. That, oh, oh, but I, that was a George. That's the only George Wien tour I did where it was everything oh, was exactly the same five bands what a for, lineup. for the whole summer. And that, and through that one, I got to get, spend quite a bit of time with both Cannonball and with Monk. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, which was huh. both great experiences, right. getting to know the band members and so on. I even, Did you chat with Monk? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, you, you couldn't chat with Monk so much as you would say, you would sort of have a conversation, but he, his responses were always mysterious yeah. words, sentences that you weren't sure what he meant. Huh. He, he liked our songs a lot. Yeah, yes, he would he would comment about the songs, but then oh, that's nice. And he would say, "Oh, that song, yeah, 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 yeah." And then he'd look at me with this point at me and said, "Wrong is right." <laughs> yeah, right. So we yeah. called the song that. <laughs> As a matter of fact, that's one of his things, isn't it? <laughs> that was one of Larry Correale's yeah. tunes. Well, there's a good title for it. He's right got there. a bunch of tunes that have titles that that I, that I imagine was him walking into the control room after laying the track down, and the producer asking him, "What's the name of that, Thelonious?" And he'd say things like, "Think of one." For instance, <laughs> for instance was one of the names. Of yeah, <laughs> that would be. Uh, or yeah. another one is Ask Me Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, with Duke, uh, the first time I met him, uh, I was still with Stan. We were at a festival, and we finished our set, and Duke's band was going to be on later. But he walked up to me as I was packing up my vibraphone and started talking to me. And I had played a solo piece, an unaccompanied solo, mm. on the vibraphone, which would... You know, he said he hadn't heard anyone do that before. Yeah. And it's that still he, pretty unusual. He said, <laughs> and he really liked it when somebody found a new way to use an instrument. Oh, yeah. And of course he that's, said that. Huh? Yeah, and of course that's just like the way he ran his band. Yeah. Anytime he found somebody that could double on violin or play a little of this or a little of that. He, Green hands. Yeah, he'd write, he'd write them into the, into the charts. That's right, yeah. So uh, Vocalists. So he talked to me for about 15, 20 minutes that yeah. night. And then every time... Time I saw him after that, he was 
this the most gracious. He would come charging across a crowded room to shake my hand and say hi, and yeah. uh, and he had these great flattering lines that he was famous for. He'd, <laughs> yeah. he'd walk over and say, well, I can see this is a classy affair. I see you're here. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, that kind of, kind right, of right. stuff. So, um, yeah. uh, I, so I, I got friendly with him and some of his band members, not, not the real famous older guys who I, was, I didn't even have the nerve to talk to. <laughs> yeah. But... Um, but a few of the bass player I remember, uh, talk, you know, saying hi to and talking to. Yeah. And the, the highlight of my Duke experience was when he invited me to one of his record sessions. Oh, yeah, yeah. In New York. Uh, what was the session? The recording was the Far East Suite. Yeah. Which is maybe considered by many people to be the, his best record ever. And um, we were both on RCA. That was another reason that I saw a lot of him. We yeah. were on the same label those years. And often the record company would have us sitting together at the Grammys or uh, at publicity events and that yeah. sort of thing. So um, he said, well, the band's going to be recording next week. Are you in town? You know, come on by. And I thought, wow, what a fantastic thing. Yeah. So uh, I pictured, he said, we, we start around 9 o'clock at night and go on. And I pictured, you know, this RCA studio, which I was familiar with, and, you know, uh, the band out in the studio playing, and I'm in the booth with the engineer and maybe a couple other people sort of thing. Where was this? In downtown New York on 23rd Street. Yeah. And... Um, when Six, I, 68 or 69? Uh, what year? Yeah. It was 67. 67, yeah. Or 60, 67 or 8, yeah. around in there, I guess. Mm -hmm. So as I came around the corner from the subway stop and saw the front of the building, normally at that time of night, it was all industrial buildings. It would have been a dark, no people around. But there was this big line of limousines mm. in front of the studio. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I walked in. There must have been 100 people in that studio, dressed in tuxedos mm. and gowns yeah. and furs. It was mm. like a Harlem uh, bar ball, ballroom yeah. event had moved downtown to the studio. Mm. And the booth was totally full of people, and it spilled out into the studio with the musicians. It set up folding chairs like a little audience yeah. in front of the band, uh, just kind of listening to them. It was a pretty big room. Yeah, big room. And so I found a chair and sat there and you know, didn't know a soul except for a couple of the band members in Duke, and watched him work uh, through this chaos of people talking and hanging out and, yeah. you know, like a party going on. Yeah. And they're reading down this, this music they'd been rehearsing, and he was, uh, you know... So they were reading music at that Oh, point. yeah. So they hadn't performed that suite. Uh, uh, well, I suppose they would have rehearsed it some. Yeah. Um, he was famous for rehearsing... Uh, after they finished gigs, yeah, he would then stay on and rehearse till two or three in the morning, mm. uh, learning, uh, working on new music, yeah. you know, uh, with the band. So I mean, I'm pretty sure they had played it before, um, and uh, I remember one piece. Um, he started playing, and about 10, 15 seconds into it, he said, "Wait, wait, wait! Something sounds wrong," and he. I figured out that one of the sax players was still playing the previous song. 
And, yeah. he, and he said, well, nobody told me we were changing. <laughs> I mean, really, yeah. another whole take was Johnny Hodges had gone to the bathroom and hadn't come back, and they counted off and played and did oh, a whole take. He wasn't even on it. Oh, I see. He before, plays lead out, though. Yeah, before so. anybody noticed. Yeah, you know? yeah. So it was kind of, and kind of a loose thing. Uh, and a bunch of cynical old guys, you know, who to whom this is just another gig for them. Wow, like, yeah. Of, of the thousands they played with with Duke over the was years. Was Billy Strayhorn there? He was there, and I didn't know him because he was never out on the road with the band yeah. where I'd see him. And I knew who he was, and uh, and and I only found out afterwards that he was there. He was he was already. Uh, you know, ill with cancer at that point, and and didn't he only lived another six or eight months oh, after after that? Oh, I see. Um, but but he but I found out this through reading about the dates that he was there. Did he arrange the Faro's? Yes, uh, he, he and he and Duke co co wrote it. They co wrote it, and yeah. certain pieces are attributed. Uh, to Billy Isfahan, for instance, a beautiful, oh, right, yeah. beautiful ballad that yeah. featured uh, Johnny Hodges. Mm. So uh, now I, I just heard one day. You know, I'm sure they recorded for two or three days. So I heard probably three or four pieces that went down. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, but I did at the time. I didn't know of how great the music was. I was so overwhelmed with the scene that was going on. But then the record came out, and I got it. And was just amazed. I yeah, said, yeah I've got to catch up on the Far East Suite. I, I've I've uh, I've listened quite a bit to the the Nutcracker Suite. Oh, I like that, that one too. That's yeah, a, that's a, and that's also a fabulous recording. Yeah, the, the recording of it. And then there's the Thursday Suite. Right. That that is also beautiful. Yeah. Those are like uh, those are like in no in the day um, were were like um, I don't know it, it, the the. The, the influence of classical music mm -hmm. and orchestration yeah. uh, and, and the, uh, the, the guts and beauty of jazz and rhythm merged together. Well, I read this recent uh, wonderful biography of Duke Ellington by Terry Teachout. Uh, the writer for the Wall Street Journal. How do you spell the second word? It, just like T it sounds. Teach. T e a c h o u t. Teach oh, out. Teach out. Oh, okay. And um, he's a he's a terrific jazz writer as well as a theater writer reviewer, and he wrote a, this classic biography of Louis Armstrong about five years ago called Pops that hmm. was a bestseller. Oh. And then now he's done you know the other f father of jazz figure Duke. And it's it's a terrific book, and I I learned so much from it reading you know the details oh, of it all. Oh, I have to check that out. And it talks about um, Duke's desire to bring in you know classical influences mm. in the writing, and also to get recognition from the musical community. Um, nowadays, that would be an easy thing to easy sell. Yeah. But at the time, Duke, you know, he came up as a dance band, right? Exactly. Uh, you know, playing in clubs in clubs, Harlem and stuff, yeah. and um, and it was a struggle. Uh, his agent for many years was Irving Mills, and that was part of the sales pitch for Duke's band yeah, was that yeah. they were a higher class, exactly, uh, yeah, uh, opera musical group than the typical dance band. I think so, uh, I think his first uh, his first band uh, in Washington was t 1929, wasn't it? Probably Something, would yeah. have been that around yeah. that time. Yeah. He was born in. 
well, 1899, 1900, right? You know, in fact, Duke's sister t told me once that she viewed Duke as growing up with the century. Yeah. You know, he was in his 20s when it was the 1920s. Yeah. He was in his 30s when yeah. it was the 30s. And so the idea was that he always kind of, his music represented each decade's uh, social you know, yeah. climate. An amazing touchstone of music for the for the beginning of uh, the beginning of jazz. I have only one experience meeting Duke. Unfortunately, I heard mm. the band several times play, uh -huh. but uh, I I was rehearsing uh, for I guess on and off over this year. Uh, I I was invited to come and accompany uh, at a rehearsal a singer named Estamaro, who sang with, who eventually sang with Duke, uh -huh. and uh, uh, she was, uh, she had a patron who, that lived on Central Park uh, West mm -hmm. that invited me, and Esther, I'd meet Esther up there, and I, I, I got paid like 25 bucks for a, a couple of hours, you uh -huh. know, and just, I read down some charts, and e Esther had an amazing, amazing gospel kind of voice, hmm. and, and uh, so I, I did that for a while, and then one morning, um, I was asked to come down that we were going to go and take what we were rehearsing to uh, audition for Duke. Oh. So we went over to Duke's apartment Terrific. and played, <laughs> I played and, uh, and Esther sang and I got to shake the man's hand and, oh. and just say, uh, just say a, uh, a polite hello, but yeah. never, got to, ne never got to really know him. And then Esther Marrow actually recorded. Got, actually got the job. Yeah, yeah, she got the job. That's so, cool. That's so we, very cool. We accomplished, we accomplished that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those early days or something else. And now, now my other, my other interest about about you you mentioned it to me once as we were traveling was um, I mean you're uh, Indianapolis is what's your well, hometown? I'm, from, well, I'm from Indiana Indiana but, but not uh, not I, Indianapolis it's no I my the nearest big town to where I lived was Evansville, Evansville. which was in the very bottom of the state just almost on the Kentucky yeah. border and uh, so I grew up in a little farm town yeah actually. yeah but yeah. uh, so so my, my I know you started early with your family mm -hmm. uh, playing playing the vibes. My interest is how how did you connect with the jazz world? Well, uh, it's 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 kind of an interesting story because um, I discovered jazz just as a listener, as as a lot of musicians do. Wherever you live, you eventually you know find a record somehow that crosses your path that that grabs your attention and you say, mm. what the heck is this? Mm. And for me, it was a Benny Goodman record mm. that I had no idea how I came across it, uh, but I put it on my little record player and couldn't get over this, mm. how complex and how exciting and the energy and this improvising that was going on. Did it have a hamp on it? No, this was not his original band. It was sort of a big band, yeah. uh, but it was uh, not one of the famous records from the 1930s. Uh, this would have been recorded you know, recently at that time in the fifties, so it yeah. was it was a, his. Was Sid Caesar playing dinner? <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know, it was. Just, I, I remember the song that I uh, identified with was "After You've Gone," a nice up-tempo version of yeah. that, and which was one of Benny's regular uh, repertoire tunes, and that got me searching for more jazz records. Yeah, and I found a record store in Evansville. It was like an hour drive from where I was living, and every Saturday, my father would drive me down to Evansville, 
and I would look through to see if what new records might have arrived. Mm. And I started collecting. Art Blakey's band was a favorite of mine at the yeah. time, Dave Brubeck, mm. um, who else? Uh, Horace Silver, yeah. and uh, Charlie Mingus, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mingus uh, um, and Mingus yeah. uh, Blues and, mm-hmm. and Truth and so on. Those, those were the records that were current in the 50s uh, as, you know, while I was in high school. Did you find any Miles? Uh, yeah, oh yes, all the relaxing and walking and cooking and oh, yeah. you know, that whole series on Steven prestige. And so, and, um, uh, so they, those were favorites of mine as well. And occasionally I would find some more obscure jazz records, you know, yeah. that weren't just the famous people. I mean, the only vibes player I ever heard on record in those days was Bill Jackson because of the modern jazz quartet being popular. Right. But, uh, you know, I. I, did, I knew the names of some of the other players, but I never saw their records uh, out in Indiana. So, what, when, so when did you first hear a jazz vibraphonist? Um, well, let me just think for a second. Um, I think it was after I had moved to Boston to go to school. Um, I'm pretty sure I didn't. You know, I've heard people on record up to that point, but I hadn't seen them. Anybody in well, person. Well, that's what I meant. When, when, in person. In, in rec- on record, who was the first oh, guy? The first vibes player I heard on, on record was Milt Jackson. He was. Because, yeah. the, like I said, first thing I looked for was, okay, who are some vibes yeah. players? And the only records that were readily available were Modern Jazz Quartet. Play, oh, Modern Jazz Quartet. Also, he yeah. recorded some nice stuff with Miles. That may probably, I'd only, yeah. there's only had one of those, and I'd yeah. only found it later on, actually. Yeah. Um, but um, so there I was, a kid in, in a small town in Indiana, mostly playing by myself mm. uh, at home, uh, you know, listening to records and trying to copy what I was hearing. Yeah. And I found a piano player in Evansville who gave lessons and uh, talked him into taking me as a student because I wanted to learn what to call these chords. All the, oh. you know, I, I, I could hear the sounds and imitate them. Yeah. And it sounded pretty like jazz playing, but I didn't know what to call anything. I didn't know, you know, why the G7 chord is followed by a C chord. How old were you at that point? Well, I wasn't driving yet, so oh, okay. I was maybe 14, 15. Oh, I see, pretty early. Dad was still taking me. Yeah. And I started at that point, I started sitting in in Evansville with local at local clubs when, when the local yeah. musicians would have sort of a jazz kind of gig. Um, I'd get invited to sit in, and my father would drive me there and sit in the back of the club all night waiting oh, for yeah. me to finish and yeah. then drive me back home again. Yeah, good, good, good caring parents. <laughs> I, got, I got one story I want to interject sure. about that because it's, it's kind of cute. Uh, when, when I was, uh, let's see, how old was I? I must have been uh, not more than eight or nine years old, something like that, and I had—I I was just playing the piano a bit, and I was studying with this. Uh, my dad showed me a bunch of stuff uh, when I was real young, and then when I was eight, I went to uh, 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 one teacher, Armando Gatella, and then I didn't like him so much, and then I found uh, Salvatore Sulo, who I, who a classical pianist, who was a friend of the family, and I studied for a while. But I, I like to play. I like to play. Uh, what I was hearing on my dad's 78s, mm-hmm. uh, which, which was uh, uh, Charlie Parker, mm-hmm. Miles, um, Art Blakey with the Billy Eckstein band, uh-huh. and then later on Horace Silver's music. 
but this was before Horace Silver. I was a little kid, and and there was a bar room um, a, a couple of blocks away where my uncles used to go. So my my dad and my mother Anna they knew the people in the bar. It was just a bar. In fact, it was well, I can't remember the name, but it was on Everett Square. Uh, but they had a piano there, oh. and my mother thought it was a good idea for me to go and <laughs> play, a little. play a little bit. So she would accompany me uh, uh, in the early evening, like after dinner, uh-huh. and I'd sit down and I'd and I'd play, and she'd sit right next to me, uh, and, uh, like, a, like a like a like a security guard, <laughs> make sure I was cool. And I'd play a couple of tunes, and uh, you know, being that young, I'd get some get some attention and and so forth. And then oh, she'd, she'd she'd walk me home, you know. So we had caring parents. Yeah. The, 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 oh, I know. I've met your parents. Yeah. And uh, they were they loved everything you did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I yeah. my plan, uh, you know, was to finish high school and go to Berkeley to go to Boston. Right. To find the jazz world. Mm. And I took a an interesting side trip um, th- through Nashville through the country. Mm. Uh, center of the country uh, because the, one of the leading guitar players in Nashville named Hank Garland uh, had become uh, a pretty strong jazz player. He discovered it and even though he was you know, making his living recording in the studios playing country music yeah. um, on the side he was playing I've jazz. Heard, I've heard that name. Yeah. He's a guitarist. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And he convinced his record label which was Columbia at the time to uh, let him make a jazz record for a change. And, uh, but he had this idea that he wanted vibes and guitar to be the, the, the sound, mm. but there were no vibes from, vibe players in Nashville. And uh, he heard about me from another musician who uh, was from Indiana and had come across me in Evansville and uh, said, well, there's this kid in Indiana you might want to check out. So a few weeks later, I rode down to Nashville with this other guy uh, who was going down for a studio session and played a couple of tunes with Hank, very impromptu, just for, you know, at the beginning of some record date. And he said, well, what are you planning to do? And I said, well, I'm going to finish high school in a few weeks, and then next fall I'm going to Boston to school. So he suggested that I move to Nashville for the summer and that we would play weekends at a club, and we would make this record, which is what I did. And by the end of the summer, not only had I made this record, uh, which got a lot of notice when it came out, but um, Chet Atkins, who ran the RCA uh, division in Nashville at the time, had become quite a fan. He came to this club we played almost every weekend to hear Mm. us play, so at the end of the summer, uh, they offered me my own record contract. Oh, yeah. So I went off to Berkeley at 17 years old with a recording contract already. Right. And, uh, you know, already, you know, set to, you know, take the, the music business by storm. That was your early start. Yeah. That's how you got uh, uh, firing up. Because I'm older than you, but you, you were on the scene uh, well, a little bit before. And part of it is being a vibes player. 
there, there's very little competition, so you get noticed earlier. If I was, for instance, a piano player, I would have been competing with you and Herbie and Keith Jarrett and, and a dozen other strong players, and it takes a while to kind of work your way up in, in visibility and get noticed by other people and so on. But as a vibes player, even when I moved to New York in 62, um, you know, there was no one else in town uh, that, you know, played the vibes much. I mean, there was Mill Jackson who was out on the road with the MJQ, but uh, it wasn't like there were a lot of uh, vibraphone players on the scene at the time. Well, it was very, very modest. I mean, if you, if you, uh, if you, if, if your playing sounded like elevator bells, you probably <laughs> wouldn't have got the gig. Well, so I've been accused of that on a couple of occasions. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, you know, I, I took a funny route to get there. Yeah, um, how fortunate! But it's you know, my first band was George Shearing, um, who was one of the few groups that used vibraphone as a regular instrument. He had already been using vibraphone yeah, for, for years for his uh, arrangements. Yeah, there were two bands that used vibraphone as, as a regular part of the band: Herbie Mann. At that time, right, and um, yeah, Dave Pike. Dave was, Pike was, was his yeah. player. Because I, I spent a year with Herbie. Oh, you did? Yeah, oh, okay. I played in Herbie's uh-huh. band. Yeah, and um, well, you know, Herbie hired me, but then didn't follow through. Oh yeah. He he called me up, had heard about me, said, uh, "Come down and uh, check out the band. We're playing at Basin Street East, and see what you think." So I did. And uh, Dave was, Pike was in the band. I guess he and Herbie had had, were having some kind of falling out at the time. Hmm. And so Herbie was thinking to change. But um, Dave got all, you know, uh, upset and threw kind of a scene uh, when, when I showed up, even though I hoped not to be noticed by him, but he recognized me. And uh, although we'd never met, Wow. And, and he a little said, friendly competition yeah, and early he, and on. He there. said, "Did Herbie ask you to come down?" I said, "Well, yes, he did." He said, "Oh man!" And it went <laughs> also, you know, and had a big. So I figured, well, that'll be the end of that. Yeah. But no, Herbie came over and said, "We're good to go. I'll call you in a week or two and and, and about the the next tour, you know, which is, yeah. starts in a few weeks. Uh, look forward to playing with you." And I waited and waited. The phone never rang. Oh yeah. Finally, I decided I got to find out if this is happening or not and called his manager Monty Kay who said I haven't heard anything about this at all I don't know I'll, oh. I'll, I'll mention it to Herbie who then finally called me to say well you know Dave and I kind of worked out you our our thing so uh, thanks anyway I that must have been around the time I played with Herbie and actually Herbie gave me my first uh, recording Oh, no kidding. Herbie Mann, yeah. He, he uh, I, I guess around that time, he was given some funding by Atlantic Records to uh, form Vortex Records. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, and he, he asked me to make a Latin record. And I refused because I, I had uh, some other uh, music I had written. And he asked me a couple of more times and uh, um, he kept wanting me to put timbales or congo in or something. And I said, well, no, I've got this music, Herbie, they're all, all ready to go. Finally, he, he relented, 
and let me go in the studio and do whatever Your I wanted things. to do. And that yeah. was uh, Tones for Jones Bones. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah, that was my first uh-huh. uh, recording. So I didn't, I didn't realize that was your first. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, first uh-huh. under my name. Mm-hmm. That was with Steve. Steve Swallow. Yeah, that's right. And Joe, uh, Chambers, and Joe Chambers. Woody Shaw and uh, Joe Farrell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, wow, we've got New York. You know, I just, um, um, I just got a... I just got an email from Marcus Gilmore, my uh, my mm-hmm. young drummer, uh, Roy's grandson. He's in town with VJ Eiler, and uh, he's in, t- in Japan. No, he's oh, in Japan. In the, they're they're oh, playing okay. at the, um, um, the one of the at the Blue Note or Coconut? No, oh, the, the, another one of the clubs. Yeah, another one of the clubs. Okay. And uh, but but um, when I wrote when I when I wrote him back. Uh, the reason why I thought of Marcus is because when I wrote him back, I said, "Yeah, welcome to, welcome to uh, uh, my favorite city in the world after New York." <laughs> and then he laughed because he's a New Yorker too, yeah, you know. Yeah. We, and all of our all of our early, uh, you know, exciting stories all seem to uh, revolve around New York City. Mm-hmm. That's where they all were. In fact, when I was doing my solo concerts, these. Uh, Past months, I, I the audience was enjoying hearing me talk about uh, my first decade in in New York mm-hmm. and how I was anxious to get out of high school and move right down, move right out of Boston uh, down to New York yeah. City because all of those guys that you were talking about Duke and Monk and they were all Miles there. they were all there in the '60s and it was a it was a great era well, you know you know I, I one of the things I kind of figured out when I was w- working on my book w- was that. You know, the people who invented jazz in the 20s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s, uh, we were on the scene soon enough to get to know a handful of them yeah. at least and meet them, yeah. hear them in person, and, uh, work, with and work with some of yeah. them. And then we've carried on the tradition. Mm-hmm. But now there's no one younger than us who can reach back and, and actually had real-time contact yeah. with, with that first generation. Yeah. We're, we're the generation that, that actually spans, so far, the whole history of jazz. We, we knew the guys firsthand yeah. who, who invented it, and then it's been our job to continue on with it. Yeah, Monk and Bud and, uh, are like legends. And, uh, yeah. You know, uh, now, did, Miles did, and Duke are larger than life. Yeah, and you, and you worked with Miles for, for several years. Mm-hmm. Did you, uh, and Stan, another legendary name, and when you think about all the people that we've uh, crossed paths with, did you see Bud in person at all? I saw Bud once, huh. my hero. I saw him mm-hmm. once because uh, during the 60s, when I, I, I was in, moved to New York in 59, then I was in New York most, uh, all of the 60s. Bud, Bud was mostly in Europe. Yeah, that's at, right. At that point. I, he, I recall. And uh, he was doing pretty well in Europe. But then when he hit New York City in 65, uh, I heard that he, he had a trio gig at, uh, uh, he, he played his trio at Birdland. Oh, yeah. And I went down and for a couple of nights I heard him play. He had J.C. Moses on drums and John Orr hmm. on, on the bass. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he was, he was in, uh, uh, he was in uh, a strange state of mind. But when he put his hands on the, on the piano, mm-hmm. there was Bud. With, yeah. with all of his great rhythm and all of those great songs. And he, the, Bud, Bud was, you know, I was reviewing some of the songs. In fact, that, that one I played for you the other night, uh, uh, Celia, the, the one yeah. that, mm-hmm. that he wrote for his daughter. 
uh, his compositions. And then you mentioned another one that um, uh, Whale. Uh, oh, Whale. Yeah. Whale. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Bud's compositions and his his melodic improvisations are some of the most lyrical yeah. in in bebop. Definitely. They're, they're beboppy, but they're but they're so singable. Mm -hmm. You know, he was one of my favorites. So I got to see him that one night. It was yeah. it was amazing. There's I, there's only a few people that I missed that I would love to have seen once, Billie Holiday, Park, yeah. Charlie Parker. Um, yeah, I, I didn't see they were they, they had, you know, were gone before we got to the city. Yeah. Um, and Louis Armstrong, I never saw him either. I would have liked to uh, just for the one time yeah. chance to, you know, he, Touchstone, he was such a, one of the founding, founding guys. But um, if you, but if you make a list of most of the legendary guys, you know we, they we've we've crossed paths yeah, with them. Yeah, yeah, it's know. fortunate. I feel happy about that. Well, we're going to uh, uh, we're going to take uh, uh, what we've learned and and throw it into uh, a kind of a a new uh, formation with the string quartet music that we've got. Yeah, I love the fact that jazz and classical music have have uh, somewhat found each other. Yeah. Uh, these days, you know, and 50 years ago when we were starting out, the the the, the line between the two things was, was pretty, uh, you know, clear cut. Yeah. And not anymore. And but not anymore. No, yeah. it's it's. Um, and you've been one of the people that have have contributed to uh, breaking it down and and making it work. I mean, we started with the string quartet thing, you know, literally, was it 25 years ago, more or less? In the 80s, in the, right? In the 80s, in yeah. the mid-80s. And, um, and it's, you know, that had long been one of my favorite projects that we did, that the record called um, uh, Lyric, Suite. Lyric Suite for Sextet. Yeah. And, uh, and here we are with, you know, frankly, the most, for me, the best a string quartet uh, for playing jazz music that I could imagine. Yeah, this, this the Harlem String the Quartet, Harlem string quartet. phrases beautifully, mm -hmm. and they really seem to get into the music uh, very effectively. Yeah. I mean, we had strong players back then too, but still, this group has has been marvelous. Yeah, and, uh, and here we are, you know, uh, with a. Mm -hmm. You know, another real run of concerts here with them is it's really looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, we have a we have a the the, the show that we're putting on has a, a, well, we start with a duet and we do everything from from something early like "Can't We Be Friends," and mm. uh, and then Jobim some of Jobim's music and Hot House, which which goes back to the forties, yeah. yeah, all the way through the lyric suite music and uh, yeah, yeah, and you you know and you've got a nice tribute to Monk. And your new uh, arrangement of Around Midnight. Around Midnight, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's you know part of the repertoire now. Yeah. So. Well, I I better practice for our rehearsal, man. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're gonna we'll meet in an hour or so and yeah. uh, get it all and uh, going. Get it all organized. Yeah. Well, thanks, man. That sure. was a lot of fun. It's I, been think, great I think I think uh, I think the uh, uh, the listeners are gonna enjoy us uh, uh, talking about New York. I uh, hope so. Yeah. Um, we'll try. We'll do it again sometime. Yeah, sure. Okay. Okay, guys. All right. Okay. See you in a bit. Thanks very much for listening. In the next episode of the Music Magic Podcast, Chick's going to talk to Wallace Roney. Wallace is one of the all-time greats on trumpet. He was taught by none other than the legend of all legends, Miles Davis, sharing the stage with Miles, and even inherited a horn from the man himself. You're going to want to hear the story direct from Wallace as he talks to Chick in our next edition of the Music Magic Podcast. 
To hear that and upcoming conversations with more of Chick's master musician friends, please subscribe in iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. And head over to chickkoreamusicworkshops.com slash Spain to download an amazing video of Chick playing his classic composition, Spain, featuring close-up video of his hands on the keys, a downloadable music transcription overseen by Chick himself. It's all free, too. Go to chickkoreamusicworkshops.com slash Spain to get that, plus upcoming training videos that aim to inspire the creative musician and provide practical tools and tips to improve your playing, all direct from Chick. That's it for now. Make sure to check out the next episode of Music Magic featuring Chick in conversation with Wallace Roney. Okay, until next time. <laughs>